1: On this week's episode of The Timeline, we have Yusuf Salim from Suns Film Room to talk about what's wrong with the Phoenix Suns. Sam, I want to start this podcast with a question to you right off the bat. (laughs) If the Phoenix Suns were a TV show, so not a sports team, if it were a TV show, would you still be watching?
2: No. (laughs) I would have turned it off long ago. Um, Remember our last episode, Mike, when I predicted that we could pull off a win against the Lakers? and and go. i I think you said two we're gonna go two and one gotta give credit to chris hansen who was our guest last week because i said this team could go two and one um this past week and that was very very wrong and this was a very hard week of basketball to watch so you know we should get into it a little bit
1: yeah of course there's no predicting that devin booker would go down with a ham hamstring strain i think they're calling it at this point so no predicting that but uh Let's. Uh, we have a guest this week. Let's bring on Yusuf Salim. Yusuf Salim runs the Suns Film Room Twitter account, and he's a writer for uh, Basketball Index, B-Ball Index, online. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us on the timeline. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yusuf, you just recently this week wrote an article called Film Room Inside the Mind of Igor Kokoschkov for B-Ball Index, uh, first off, that was an incredible article. I really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's a lot like your Twitter feed for those of you who follow uh, Suns Film Room but maybe haven't read the article yet. It's a lot like that in that it takes individual plays. It breaks down how Igor ran those plays previously and how those plays are currently being run uh, for the Suns. Now, you've been watching. Obviously, you've been paying very close attention to Igor Kakashkov. So far, how do you feel about how those sets have translated to the NBA so far?
3: Well, I mean, I thought with Igor, um, his sets, I was actually pretty surprised that he was kind of sticking to the same exact sets and even to the same exact terminology. The plays, for the most part, are the exact same terminology in terms of literally going to your double eyes, fish shirt pull, chin, chin series, pistol series. So I thought that he would have expected to have a problem knowing the hole they have at the point guard position. Because you have to understand for Slovenia, he had Luka Doncic, Goran Dragic, who at that level are probably two of the best guards in Europe when you're playing at Eurobasket. So for him to stick with that system, knowing that Isaiah Canaan's your best point guard, is your starting point guard, I thought I thought they I thought he should have known that it's that you're going to run into a problem. I thought I also thought that you hear him say it a lot that Devin Booker is, is his primary playmaker. So I think he viewed Devin Booker as that point guard to play as Goran Dragic. So um, it it really hasn't worked out for them too well so far.
2: That actually brings up a really good point, Yusuf, that I was going to ask you about anyway. Because if you look at that Slovenian team, as you said, they were so. Centered around um, Dragic and and Doncic, and didn't really have a dominant big in the form that the Suns have DeAndre Ayton right now. So, I guess, what's your opinion of how DeAndre Ayton is currently being utilized in the Suns' offense? Um, and and is there any are there any tweaks that you think could be made? Uh, to potentially use him more efficiently if you don't think he's being used that well right now.
3: No, I think they've been using him pretty well. They've done a good job of getting him certain switches. If you look at the first play of the game against the Mavs, it's a pistol five set that they run out of their pistol series where they set a cross screen and they're able to get Donchit switched onto him. So um, a lot of that's what they run a lot for him is running different cross screens and rip screens to get smaller guys switched onto him. And he's had success, so I don't agree with... I know people on Twitter a little bit are saying that you have to play through DeAndre Ayton more. I think the amount of touches they're giving him is fine.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's less of a problem as as much as when he gets open based on some of these sets, it's been very difficult to get him the ball, especially on the roll, on the weak side roll. Uh, I mean, that's a difficult pass in general, but uh, we haven't done very well at getting him the ball now, do you think now you talked about that you were surprised that there weren't a lot of changes. Do you find that that's a criticism of Igor Kokoshkov that he hasn't maybe adjusted the offense based on not having an effective point guard or do you think that this is just something that comes with time, uh, you know, based on what you've seen of him so far? Well,
3: I think most coaches really don't change that much. Um Igor in his first press conference has said something along the lines of I'm a young coach. I don't have a philosophy. Once you get experience, that's how you build your coaching philosophy. But, I mean, he's stuck to the same exact stuff. He ran for Slovenia. Um, I thought they had success with that only because, they, like I said, they had Dragic and Luka Doncic. So um, I think you could fault him for not changing, to just sticking to what he wants to do rather than focusing more on Creating a system that would work without having a star point guard.
2: Maybe we should talk about the point guard position a little bit because, you know, I don't, I don't know, uh, Yusuf, if you just got finished watching the game against OKC, but you talked about Isaiah Canaan. Four now has been the starting point guard, uh, but Elia Kobo just had easily the best game of his promising career so far. He finished with 18 points, um, eight assists, and is obviously in many ways still a flawed player. Um, has tons of inexperience, um, but does have some interesting skills in his arsenal as well certainly as a shooter that I think he showed off tonight in sort of framing that there's not there's obviously not a Goran Dragic on this team but do you think that Akobo potentially uh, has that potential to maybe sort of step into uh, the role that Kanan is currently playing and, and do a little bit of a better job as the season goes on or do you think the Suns really need to maybe give up on this experiment early and, and look to the outside look at trades uh, if they are going to continue running these same types of plays
3: yeah, I think um I finished well on your first part with Ellie. I think I think he's a, gonna be a good player. I thought they made the right choice there. I thought he was a good pick at thirty one, where they got him in the second round. So you have to find a way to give him minutes, and I think he will produce well. But if you're looking at going out and competing against tonight, Russell Westbrook. Um, on Wednesday, you play two all star players again in DeRozan and Aldridge. You play Toronto, where they got Lowry and Kawhi Leonard. So, I mean, Elia Cobo is really not going to move the needle for you that much in terms of going out there and beating those quality teams, right? So, that's when you look outside and say the point guard position is the most important position for our team. I finished that piece trying to get to that point a little bit where the Suns really haven't had to build a roster around a system if you look around the league a lot of successful teams between the GM and the coach they're all on the same page in terms of knowing this is a system we're going to run and we're going to go get players that fit that system so I think it kind of goes back to ownership and management if you're going to go look at a trade and knowing can we stick with Igor for the next three years and invest in a point guard where you give up future first-round picks, you give up assets, and go get a Kemba Walker, go get a high, high-quality point guard, knowing that's the most important position in this offense. And we're going to trust Igor for the next three years and build around him.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a cruel joke <laughs> to to hire Igor Kokoshkov when, as you know, you followed him Throughout this time, this hiring process, it's very clear that the most important position is point guard. It's almost a cruel joke to to hire him and then not give him any sort of quality uh, point guard. Even Devin Booker, we've seen the point book as much as we want it to work. It's it's not working. It's difficult for him to uh, balance that being the most important scorer on the team and then trying to find other players. That's a point guard's job, and he hasn't really done that. In his entire basketball playing career, so it 's difficult for him to do that too. But what makes it really hard and and what makes it interesting about where we 're at right now is that fans tend to look at this and they want to blame someone uh They say this is not going as we expected now it should be said the schedule is very hard, but it's one thing to to lose it's another thing to get killed and lose by twenty or twenty plus points. Um, or even like today, the game that just ended with OKC, it was essentially a 20-point loss, and then it, it was cut a little closer in garbage time at the end of the game. But what makes it hard is the fans are looking for someone to blame, and there's two sides of this coin right now. There's the fans that are saying, is Igor going to be fired? This is already My- happening. And I don't blame them because because of the past. What's happened in the past? We fired Earl Watson after three games. It's it's We have an owner that's a little bit of a loose cannon, so we don't know what's going to happen. So as ridiculous as it seems, talking about firing Igor has already started on, on all ends of the internet. It's by fans, of course. It's not the media. It's by fans. And then there's the other side of it that says, well, how do we judge a coach when the most important... Position in his scheme is the point guard uh, and 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 it's like what, what what's really happening here so from your perspective, Yusuf, what I really want to know is how do you feel about Igor so far? Uh, do you feel like he's done a good job? do you think that it takes a while to judge? I know I know that we don't have to give a warning here of course, this is a small sample size theater we all know that we don't know what things are going to turn out in later but just so far, how do you feel about Igor? Well,
3: I think Igor he's in a tough spot like like we've talked about the point guard position, so he's dealing with that, but I certainly think he's an upgrade over what we've had in the past in terms of his personality, <laughs> you know. I don't think he's out there counting high fives. I was actually kinda of noticing, I don't know if you guys were noticing, he doesn't really give players high fives when they check out of the game. Is that so mm-hmm. so I'm sure he's not counting high fives and making them feel good. It's kind of like the opposite um, type of personality with him. But on the as far as basketball X's and O's, his X's and O's are not holding the team back. I think from a pure talent standpoint, they just don't have it. So, I mean, if you watched Ariza tonight, um, he didn't start the second half. He looked like he was battling through some kind of injury or something's not right with him. Um, Ryan Anderson really hasn't given you much. Um, so, again, I, I don't think you can place that much blame on Igor at this point because I think he'll, he'll figure it out.
2: Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think it says something when, as you were saying, Mike, this was almost a 20-point loss. In fact, Dave King, I have to give credit to him because he was the one who brought this stat up on Twitter, had the Suns lost by 18 points tonight, they would have been the first team in 48 years to lose five straight games. Uh, by 18 or more points, and it was looking like it was going to go that way before they were able to cut it down towards the end of the game and avoid that fate. So just in t- making a point of how historically bad they've been in this stretch. Uh, but Yusuf, if you bring up Anderson and Ariza, what does it say about this team when Elia Kobo and Mikhail Bridges are going out there and, and the team seems to be playing, at least tonight, its best basketball with those rookies on the floor because you have guys like Ariza and Anderson just struggling to hustle back on defense transition defense has been a huge problem for this team so far um they're they're giving up the most fast break points to opponents in the league by a wide margin so far and they're not getting many fast break points for themselves on the other end just you know it it's just interesting trying to evaluate these veterans right now because it really doesn't seem like we know this isn't what these guys were on houston Uh, why, why are they struggling so much right now? Is it again, just the lack of a point guard? Um, is it that they just start, you know, taking their money and then they're going to run with it? Or what's your evaluation of Ariza and Anderson thus far into the season?
3: I mean, yeah, I think a little bit like you touched on is a little bit of the taking their money coming here for a year, especially with Ariza signing a one year deal for $15 million. Um, Look, he shot 42%, 43% corner threes last season for Houston. This season, at least through the first couple of games, he hadn't even made a single corner three before the Laker game, and it's not like his shooting percentages are that much higher. So um, when, you, when you're when you not shooting the ball, well, that in itself just leads to poor transition defense, right, because you're giving more chances to run out in transition. Look, If you miss a corner three, that usually leads to a transition bucket on the other end right so they just need to shoot the ball better better in my opinion they've had many good looks it's not like they're taking bad shots um as far as why they're missing open shots I don't think
1: they could tell you why either so now I have a couple stats I want to go over and they're not fun I'm going to warn you right now and then Sam I actually want to get your opinion on this first uh First of all, the Suns have the worst point differential in the NBA so far. It's uh, this is as of before the OKC game ended. I'm sure it didn't get much better. <laughs> uh it's it's we've lost by 13 or more in every game so far. That's actually worse than all of last year so far. We are 29th in turnover per- percentage, so Uh, almost the worst in turning the ball over. We're 27th in forcing turnovers, so not very good at uh, turning that around on the other end of the the ball, Uh, and 29th in effective field goal percentage on defense, so one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA. Uh, What I really want to talk about is how much of this should we be holding Igor Kokoschkov responsible for? how much of this falls onto the coach? Because there's a lot of it here. The effective field goal percentage is one thing. It seems like we're getting a lot of open shots. Sam, I know you had a stat that you posted on Twitter that was about assist percentages. And, and it's, you sort of used that as a measurement of what Igor Kakashkov has done so far. And I don't know if you have that stat near you. If you do, feel free to talk about it. But how do you feel about how much of this falls on Igor? Uh,
2: yeah, I, I don't have the exact stat on me, but what I can tell you is the Suns, at least going into the OKC game tonight, were first in the league in terms of a uh, percent of their field goals that were assisted, which is usually, it's not perfect, but it's a, a decent measurement of the Suns are getting open looks um, and getting good, clean looks, as, as Yusuf was sort of alluding to earlier, and getting more and more away from the isolation-heavy offense, the, the pick-and-roll um offense that they were so focused on throughout the Dragic and Bledsoe years and then certainly in the past few years with point guards like Brandon Knight were sort of just guys creating for themselves uh, and, and not really looking for others. So look, I, I don't think too much of the blame falls on Igor Kokoschkov right now. I, I'm mostly concerned with the effort because seriously, out of some of these veterans, Tyson Chandler, I don't think has contested a single shot all season. Um, Trevor Reason, Ryan Anderson just look plain bad. And I think some of it is going to even out. I think those corner threes are going to start falling eventually. I think for Ryan Anderson, just missing open threes isn't going to be a problem for him consistently. But it's just hard to explain right now why uh, some of these guys just look so bad on the court when I don't really think it's the system that is to blame.
1: Well, Yusuf, do you feel the same way? Because I, I just wonder at what point do we start holding Igor accountable for these types of things? And I'll, and I'll talk about how I feel about that after, after you, Yusuf. But what, what do you think about that?
3: Well, I think if you were to ask a lot of the players in the locker room, um, how, like their respect level for Igor is probably higher than some of the prior coaches we've had. Um, I'm not going to name the player, but with one conversation with a player I've had in the past, towards the end of last season, when we were having this same conversation about X's and O's, he straight up told me, honestly, our players are basic as shit. So now, now, like, <laughs> I mean... Like, so now if I were to ask him the same question right now, I think his respect level for Igor is going to be a lot higher. Now, if your respect level for Igor is a lot higher, then why isn't the effort there, right? So a lot of the problems are pure effort, and that's what just doesn't add up because it's not like you're playing in March and April with no reason to win. It's the first like two weeks of the season, right? So, um, That just doesn't add up the effort. That's why I think Igor is probably going to look to play the younger guys more here with
1: Bridges and Okobo. Uh, We can certainly hope so. But I'm glad you brought that up because this is the main thing I think we can look at. Transition defense, we're one of the worst teams of all time so far this season in transition defense. You talked about missing shots and how that creates easy transition looks for the other team. And a measurement of transition defense is a measurement of effort. Because transition defense is effort. There's, I mean, sometimes there's a lucky run out where players are wide open, sort of cherry picking, but a lot of times it's just effort. And what I've really been thinking about lately is who should be held responsible for effort being low, especially when effort is low on young guys. Now, you talked about hopefully one of the solutions to the effort problem would be playing the young guys. And I kind of agree with that because they're playing for their career a lot more than guys like, say, Areza and anderson are it's just when you think about effort doesn't that fall on the coach Uh, what do you think sam
2: yeah i agree with you it it falls on the coach and it falls on the veterans as well the entire point of um bringing in kakashkov and ariza and anderson was a culture reset um so i i think you know if these guys go out and they see ariza and anderson not giving a shit and and frankly really ariza and anderson their transition defense has been uh, absolutely putrid this entire season every time I, I look at them not get back on defense then um, it's hard for the young guys to care as well but strangely enough just I don't have any stats on it on hand but what the eye test is telling me from watching this last week of games is that the young guys Bridges and Acobo are really making good use of their minutes in terms of the effort level they do and I don't know if that's me just hyping up the rookies a little bit too much because I want to believe but it just looks like they're making so much more out of their minutes than uh, the older players are But certainly to to bring it back to, because your question was about Igor, um, I do think one thing that he can do to sort of amend the problem is start to play the young guys more, bench the veterans until they can prove that they're really willing to do what they were brought here to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, one sort of potential solution to that, but I don't know that it solves a lot of the on-court problems other than maybe effort, because one of the big problems is defense. Now, your article, Yusuf, that you wrote was it was a focus on offense. Now, do you watch a lot of film of the team on defense as well? And if you do, how do you how do you feel about it so far? Well,
3: I think Sam brought up a great point. I think it's not as much individual defense. I think, like he said, you brought in Igor Ariza and Anderson as a way to reset the culture. It was viewed as a culture reset, in my opinion. Um, that was not going to happen. I think culture reset goes on ownership. In my first piece that I actually wrote for B-Ball Index, I kind of touched on that a little bit where a lot of it's actually about the amount of money that goes into the organization. If you study a lot of the new owners in, um, in Sacramento with Vivek where they put in a lot of money into the organization with their new arena, new practice facility. If you look at Brooklyn, when they had new ownership, Sean Marks came in there. They have a new practice facility. They put in a lot of money into player development and into a lot of resources within the organization. If you look at Milwaukee, when Mark Lazary came in there, they just built out their new practice facility. I think a lot of that is not on Igor or the players. You can have whatever coach you have, but to build that culture where guys are coming in professionally every day, you need good veteran, older professional basketball players And you need to spend more money into the organization. And a lot of the culture of the organization is also just pure geographic location. If you look at the Lakers, the Knicks, the Bulls, when you're a small market team, if you study Milwaukee, if you study Brooklyn, Brooklyn's not a small market, but I think the Nets are a smaller franchise. If you look at Sacramento, they understood that and they spent a lot of money into other resources that they believe are going to translate into more wins, and I do think it will translate into more wins for them.
1: It sounds like we need a new practice facility.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need. Yeah, I mean, you need to spend more money into the organization, I think, if you want to change the culture. And then, look, if you're going to bring in Ariza and Anderson, I don't think, like, they're good players, but they're not, like, all-star level basketball players. So I thought the expectations on them were also... A little bit too high so because um, if you look around the league again I just mentioned it you play Russell Westbrook and Paul George tonight on Wednesday you played DeRozan and Aldridge and then on Friday you go play Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard so if you think adding a reason Anderson's going to like put you on the same level as those teams I don't really see how you're gonna be right
1: well especially with how they've played so far Uh, because neither of those guys have really contributed on on the court it's one thing to to bring any sort of veteran leadership off the court but if Anderson can't hit a shot Ariza can't hit a shot and Ariza's getting beat off the dribble quite a bit I would say so far it's it's difficult to have any sort of leadership off the court if you don't provide that on the court as well yeah you're right so um I think I
3: think the next move for them is to just try and find a way to get some really good players. Um, I think a lot of their problems the past years have been, they've kind of been unlucky. If you look back at the 2016 draft, you had a hole at the power, power forward position. So you can't really go and draft Jamal Murray. So you settle for Dragon Bender, um, trade for Marquise Chris. If you look at this past offseason, There's really no great point guard available um, that you could have trade for. Like there wasn't a disgruntled Kyrie Irving. Um, If you look back at the year before, I think a lot of the problem was they had Eric Bledsoe and they just viewed him and that he'll stay. And then as soon as he leaves, you just have a gigantic problem. So
2: yeah, all all valid points. I mean, frankly, at at this point, I would still be happy just with a. Patrick Beverley or Spencer Dinwiddie that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks. But if you really want to go out there and acquire a good player, which it sounds like you do at the point guard position, um, then we have to bring up the old conversation that we talk about all the time, which is what players on this team are viewed as valuable. Does it cost Josh Jackson? Does it cost TJ Warren? Does it cost how many future first round picks? What is even the value of a guy like Josh Jackson right now? Given his start, we haven't talked about him at all. Uh, at this point? Those are those are all questions that we would need to think about if we're going to go and, and make a push for an all-star caliber point guard.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think Josh Jackson can get you a first round pick. So he doesn't have that kind of value where you got a first round pick for mm-hmm. Eric Bledsoe. So at this point, if you're not going to get a first round pick for him, I don't think you're going to get like a super quality player for him. So you might as well just keep him and see if something clicks for him. Um, before the draft, I wasn't particularly too high on Josh Jackson because, again, I think a lot of building a team goes back to getting certain guys that you can just tell are super professional. If you look at Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, kind of see it with DeAndre Eaton a little bit. Um, a, one reason for that, if you if we really want to get into um, that topic, is... Their parents, their dad was a professional basketball player. Jason Tatum, Devin Booker. If you look at Steph Curry, Ben Simmons, mm-hmm. um, Clay Thompson. So um, I think they just need to try and bring in more professional basketball players. I don't think Josh Jackson really showed that from day one. And other teams around the league I don't think are super high on him. That being said, if you look at certain players that the Suns just let go, and Alex Len, Derek Jones Jr., Um, Those guys are playing better than what they did for the Suns. And that, again, goes back to the culture of the entire organization.
1: Yeah, I actually tweeted recently asking if Suns fans would trade Josh Jackson for Markel Fultz. And I thought it was an interesting conversation because they're both very similar in that they're very highly projected guys who just haven't figured it out. For one reason or another, and that reason is probably shooting more than anything else uh, a working jump shot on either of those guys changes a lot and The question was just sort of a hypothetical question to to gauge how suns fans felt about josh jackson 's trade uh v- value basically how valuable would he be on the trade market and I, the majority of suns fans said no they wouldn 't do that and uh you know and I think it 's because they view Josh Jackson as more valuable than Mark Foltz, but I I do kind of wonder is that why why do they do that <laughs> I haven't seen anything from Josh Jackson so far that really shows that but I do want to sort of transition the conversation into the the lineups question because a lot of the conversation and criticism that the team has taken over the course of these uh terrible last 5 games uh, has been focused on the lineups that Igor Kokoschkov has been playing so far. So we've seen a lot of Ariza, we've seen a lot of Anderson, we've seen a lot of Tyson Chandler. We haven't seen any DeAnthony Milton. We've seen very little Kobo until the last two games. Uh, and we've seen not a lot of Mikhail Bridges and not, basically no Rashawn Holmes in, unless it's in garbage time. Now, it's it's a little frustrating to watch, and I understand why a lot of Suns fans have been frustrated, because when you're getting killed, it'd be nice to see some young guys play some minutes, because if you're just watching veterans who are probably not going to be on the team as early as next year, what's the point of watching these guys just sort of flail uh, in these games? Um... Yusuf, how have you felt about the lineups that Igor Kakashkov has played so far? Do you find it odd, or do you think it's just beginning of the year, playing the veterans until you mm-hmm. kind of well, figure out? Well, I don't think he really expected that they
3: would be the first team in the last 48 years to lose five games in a <laughs> row by, like, 20 points, right? So I thought his idea was if we play these vets, um, obviously Booker got hurt, but with Booker, we can compete. I mean... I thought the same. I mean, I I mean, I certainly didn't think they'll lose every single game by 20 points. So um, I thought that was part of the reason. But um, I personally am not that high on Mikel Bridges going back before the draft, before he was a Phoenix Sun. So I don't know what they've seen in practice with him where they don't want to play him as much. Maybe something with that. But if I were to throw out a lineup change, I think I would play Booker, Bridges, um, Jackson, Ariza, and then Aiton at the five. That would be my best lineup. I might not start with that, but that would be the lineup that would get the most minutes. Um, but I think the main thing, I just don't understand why Tyson Chandler is still playing. I think you have to play Rashawn Holmes. Even Dragon Bender, I I, I, I disagree with them just throwing Dragon Bender away, like it makes absolutely no sense. so um, see dragon see dragon dragon is a typical example of a player if he was not in the Phoenix Suns organization, if he was in Utah, great ownership, San Antonio, Boston, like a really good organization he would look much much better and he would be a valuable player to those guys in their in like a playoff game that's he's that he's that good in my opinion but now he's in phoenix he really hasn't felt comfortable from the beginning and if you actually watch him play when he first came on he wasn't this bad so something that's the organization's mm-hmm. fault for him to literally get worse over a 3 year period so
2: yeah that's that's interesting. I mean, I can't. I can't say I particularly agree with Dragon, but I, I do agree with the possibility. It's just hard to verify, you know, what might be the case with that. Obviously, we don't have inside access to the practices. Um, regarding your point on Tyson Chandler, I, I looked it up before the OKC game. He was allowing opponents to shoot seventy-seven percent inside six feet, and I, I, I mm-hmm. think at that point, it's it's essentially, <laughs> it's essentially just letting your guy get past you and, and have an open dunk and then just hope he misses it every once in a while. It's a complete lack of interior defense where obviously it's the most important position defensively to to build your defensive system around. So I completely agree with you there. Um, I would throw all of Chandler's minutes to Rashawn Holmes at this point. And honestly, I do agree about not completely throwing Dragan Bender away. I don't think two years uh, is enough to completely give up on this guy when he's so young. I wouldn't give him many minutes, but... The Suns are, are pretty desperate for front frontcourt uh, answers right now, so I would certainly at least experiment with Bender and see if you can maybe get him going in his third season a little bit.
1: I I, I find that interesting. I think that Bender is sort of viewed as his plus defensive player, and it's possible that he is. It's difficult to judge based on these the way the season has gone so far. It's hard to picture how good defensively he would be when everyone else kind of lays down on defense. How, how, how much can you defend three or four players on your own? But I do want to talk about defense, and I want to see use of what you think the main problem is with uh, our defense. Now, a lot has been made of uh, over the last few days about getting rid of Shaquille Harrison, uh, getting rid of Davon Reed. Those are two of our better defenders that were on our uh, team over the off season, and then of course we're not really playing a lot of Dragon Bender. Tyson Chandler's not much of a defender anymore. Do you think that the main problem with our defense is players? or do you think that it's scheme or effort over the 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 actual personnel that we well, have
3: well i mean in terms of players effort or scheme i would kind of rank the blame on players and then effort and then scheme i think i think players make a difference i know a lot of people think that playing nba defense is about team defense which i completely agree with but when your individual players, like Devin Booker doesn't give you that much or anything defensively, he's a negative defender. Um, DeAndre Ayton's going to mm-hmm. have his struggles, I think. Um, he's he's a better pick-and-roll defender than people on draft Twitter were um, making the case for him to be like a terrible pick-and-roll defender, terrible defender. Um, so individually, like Josh Jackson has not lived up to the defensive ability that he was supposed to be Um, so a lot of that is part of the players and then Ariza has not looked like a great defender since he got here Um, I think with him it's a little bit of an effort issue at times but I don't want to say that on him considering tonight he looked like he has been battling something and he obviously didn't start the second half so I don't want to say He's not, I, I mean, he's obviously playing through something we don't know exactly what that is. And then Anderson's not a plus defender at all, Tyson Chandler's not a plus defender at all. Um, Isaiah Kanan actually, I think, is a decent defender again. Again, so again, it goes back to the culture of the organization. If you look around the league the way they scout teams and the way that they know other teams' sets and what they're running, and everybody on the court knows what's coming. You just don't see that with the Suns the last couple of years. For example, if the Suns run, say say they run double eyes or they run fish or pull, you'll see the entire team's assistant coaches get up. They'll call out the set. You'll see a couple players on the team, call out the set, and they'll have it all scouted out in terms of what they want to do defensively. That, I don't know if you... I guess you put that on the coaching staff, I guess, but that's also a problem of playing super young players who aren't used to that type of... those types of things. If you look at... If you study the Denver game, Gary Harris was almost calling out every single set the Suns are running. Um, There's certain guys around the league that they just know because they watch so much film and they go through it so well. Um, Bradley Beal in Washington, we're going to play them coming up. See it with Kyle Lowry on Friday. He's one of the best at it. Patrick Beverly. So the Suns really don't have that defensive anchor. I'm not talking about like a DeAndre Ayton defensive anchor. I'm talking about a guy that like puts everybody Mm -hmm. on the same page. Um, Isaiah's actually been trying to do that a little bit, where you see him um, trying to call out sets and whatever. But I think... It's just so difficult when you have younger players and it's not like the, the culture of the organization is just not as professional as other teams. And I guess that's on ownership or whatever. I mean, I don't know why they're not as professional as other
1: teams. That was That's really interesting. I, you know, I, the lineup that you brought up earlier, you talked about... Um, Josh Jackson being in maybe the best lineup that that you sort of came up with for the team. So I want to do a little small sample size theater again because it's hard to judge a lot so far, but I was just sort of sifting through some stats um, on and off the court. So Josh Jackson uh, on and off. So when Josh Jackson is on the court, we have a, a negative differential of negative 9.1. No surprise there, <laughs> being that we've lost every game but one. With Josh Jackson off the court, our neg- our negative differential is actually 18.9. So it's much worse. And if you actually factor in lineups where Josh Jackson's on the court and DeAndre Ayton's on the court, it actually goes to a positive differential of 6.4. So it's been really difficult to watch Josh Jackson so far in that it's been pretty bad. Let's just say that it's been pretty bad. But sort of when you dig into it a little more... Maybe he's providing something that is more difficult to, to see in the uh, regular sort of box score. Maybe it's more um, these differential stats that you can kind of see it. How do you feel? Now, obviously, Aiton is a big factor in all of these lineups. If you, if you factor Aiton into a lot of these lineups, the differential changes drastically. But just focus on uh, Josh Jackson so far. Yusuf, how do you feel about how he's played so far within Igor's system? Well, I feel like he hasn't really
3: taken a jump forward um again i think it goes back to again the culture of the organization if josh jackson right now was in boston or in san antonio in utah he would be a much better basketball player he would look like a much better basketball player um igor he's not a great fit in the offense in terms of i think josh needs plays called for him where you run a certain zipper set to get him isolated from the center of the floor. You run a cross screen for him to get a touch on the left or right block, get him a post-touch. Um, I think he struggles attacking closeouts. He can't really shoot. He's not confident with his jump shot. I know he's changed it a little bit, but he doesn't really excel playing in an off-ball role as a three, and he can't play point guard like a Ben Simmons or Giannis. So now he's kind of just like stuck in this weird position um, if you study a lot of the great players that have come through the draft, the first thing I look at personally is their ability to attack a closeout with a one-dribble pull-up or a two-dribble pull-up. Josh Jackson doesn't have either. Dragon Bender doesn't have either. Mikel Bridges at Villanova didn't have either. Um, if you look at Kevin Knox, Devin Booker, Jason Tatum, Clay Thompson, those guys are automatic attacking a closeout with a one- or two-dribble pull-up. So... That's why I'm personally not on, as high on Mikkel Bridges as other people. Um, I think, Josh, that's the same problem he's kind of ran into is he can't play as a spot-up shooter because he can't shoot, and then he can't attack a closeout with a mid-range jumper, so he just attacks the rim, and then that isn't really working out for him. So, And you can't play him on ball at the point guard position. They tried <laughs> doing that a little bit, but it's just not going to work out. So... Um, that's why he's kind of in a weird spot in his NBA career where I think you need to run plays for him and Igor is not going to run plays for him. So that's that's a problem. I guess if you're going to knock Igor for that, you could knock Igor for that.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree with you, Yusuf. And, and for the record, Josh has 13 assists, 23 turnovers um, right now after this game as we're talking about mm-hmm. it. So clearly the point guard role isn't going to work for him. Um, and the, the playmaking, he's shown flashes of playmaking in the past. He's shown flashes of good chemistry, um, throwing loves to DeAndre Aiden in the past. But overall, very clearly, you don't... Here's the thing about Josh. You don't want to make him a high-usage player. And I agree with you exactly. It's very hard to figure out exactly what he is on offense right now, but sort of the one thing going for him in favor of, of the case for Josh Jackson is that we really haven't seen him play with Devin Booker a lot yet. We've only seen a few games of it. Um, and so I'd like to put... Josh somehow into that starting lineup with Devin Booker, with DeAndre Ayton, force him into as low a usage rate as you possibly can, sort of where he's he's just focused on making smart cuts and, and not over-dribbling to the extent possible and, and focusing his energy into defense and really seeing what that can maybe produce out of him uh, on both ends, offensively and defensively. Don't think he's going to become a, a great shooter right away just because you do that, but I do think he'd be able to get some cleaner looks and hopefully... Uh, just give better production than we're seeing out of him right now,
1: so Josh Jackson and Devin Booker have played two hundred possessions on the court together so far, and they're at a positive two point four uh differentials, so they've played minutes, but not a lot. I think you're right about that two hundred possessions this deep into the season is actually um, not that many you You would think it would be more at this point, but with devin Booker being out that I'm sure that's part of the reason, but also devin Booker starts Josh comes off the bench. So um, there's that. A couple of other Jackson stats, because I've been very frustrated with Jackson. I actually texted Sam after the last game and said I was going to pull some net rating stats, and I thought they were going to be much worse for Josh Jackson. I did a two-man lineup um, sort of looking at the lineups in the NBA.com stat uh, lineups, and, and the Ayton jackson lineup is actually the best two, two-man lineup the Suns have. So when those two are on the court together... Uh, it actually results in the highest net rating of three point seven for if you factor in some basic uh, minimum possessions. That's that's the highest rated one. If you don't factor that in, you can look at Booker and Bridges, <laughs> who have only played seventeen minutes together, but they have a uh, they have a net rating an insane one of fifty five uh, a plus fifty five point seven per one hundred possessions. So that's an insane one. Obviously not able to be kept up. But it's just I find it interesting that what the eye test for Josh Jackson it hasn't really been the same as what the stats are um, as far as the team actually playing well when he's on the floor, and that could come down to he's actually got a little bit of chemistry with Aiton when we haven't really seen a lot of other players that have a lot of chemistry with him so far. Now, I do want to ask you, Yusuf, though. When you just look at this season as a whole so far, what do you think is the number one problem with the team up to this point? uh professionalism
2: um
1: I think again I've
3: I've talked about it a lot I've like I I went to practice last week I mean I'll go to practice throughout this season I've talked to guys on the team um like the it's, it's I think that's a lot of things that I mean I didn't really understand that too until I kind of started doing this and got in there so much of it is just culture of the organization and that goes back to ownership so ownership and management or whatever. I mean, you fire Ryan, I don't think that's it do as much as you think it is, but um, it's about being a professional. Again, like I said, defensively, if you look at certain assistant coaches, if you look at certain players, they know they call out certain sets and they have certain defensive schemes for certain sets. Um, like Boston, for example, Brad Stevens is is the best at it because that's a part of their preparation, and um, that's that's been a problem for them. There's no excuses for such bad transition defense. That's the number one sign of a poorly coached team and a poorly ran organization is poor transition defense, and their transition defense has to be like historically bad. I don't know the numbers, but I would just say professionalism is the biggest problem. Forget about what they're running, who the players are, or whatever it is. It's just about professionalism and effort.
1: Sam, what do you think the biggest problem is?
2: Uh, It's a hard question to answer. Actually, Joseph, yeah. I'm surprised with your answer. It's a good one now that I think about it, but I wouldn't have even thought about it. Um, I probably would have told you <laughs> effort on the part of uh, the veterans. I would have told you transition defense. Um, I would have told you breaking open shots but all of these are small problems when you when you bring them up to professionalism and and talking about how culture starts at the top we've gone a couple of episodes now i think or or maybe only one episode without talking about robert sarver um but since yusuf has has mentioned it a lot this episode i do think you have to bring it back to robert sarver um and and all of these sort of intangible things that we just as fans don't see going on inside the locker room inside the front office uh, that could potentially have a negative impact on this team throughout the season. So uh, I don't know. I think that is a pretty good answer right now in terms of uh, what's plaguing the Suns.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a point that I wouldn't have thought of, and I, and I love how succinct it is, because professionalism is just a really good word for it, because it comes down to professionalism at all levels, from the ownership to the front office to the coaches and then to the players, because what I like about saying professionalism is it doesn't point it at anyone, maybe, except for Robert Sarver. It sort of implies that there's uh, professionalism that needs to be fixed at all levels, and it's true. The, the veterans haven't been playing up to what they should be doing. The, the young guys need to step up a little bit, too, although some of them have played pretty well so far. Aiton, it's difficult to criticize Aiton. Of course, he's got defensive issues, but he's been so good. He's been really good. I mean, we haven't even really talked about that. In fact, Yusuf, how do you feel about DeAndre Aiton so far? Were you high on him coming into the draft? Did, did you have him number one? And how have you felt uh, he's performed so far? Well, I think I think he's played to where my expectations were.
3: Um, personally, I had Marvin Bagley at number one. Uh, Marvin's just a kid. I and mean, I've known Marvin since middle school, so... Kind um, I just grew up with him from the same place in Arizona. So um, I think he's going to be the best player in the draft. I think he's in a bad spot in Sacramento right now in terms of getting minutes and whatnot. But um, I thought they made the right choice to go with Ayton over Doncic, even though, again, if you hire Igor, then, then your primary thing is getting a point guard, right? So Luka Doncic kind of fit that bill. But I think when you look around at a lot of the top young bigs in the NBA in terms of Anthony Davis, Jojo Embiid, um, who, whoever, Boogie Cousins when he was in Sacramento, none of those guys really got to play with an all-star level two guard. And when you have an all-star level two guard at that age, and then you have, I think DeAndre is going to be an all-star as well. So that's something that's very special and kind of rare because, that for some reason, it just doesn't happen where you have the both of that combination. It's kind of easier to get the guard and it's kind of easier to get the Donchich-Booker combination where you have the two guards rather than the get the guard and big combination. So that's why I kind of was on getting Aiton more than Doncic.
1: So. Yeah, he's been really good, and when you look at all the lineup stats that I've been digging into, um, he's the common thread with a lot of our best lineups. And I've even seen some fans sort of turning on it and saying, "Well, this is this might just be Aiton's team in the future. And, you know, he might even be better than Booker at this point when, or in the future, maybe not right now because of the potential and how well he's played just right out of the gates." And I understand saying that because. Booker didn't start like this. I mean that's that's one one way to say it. And of course Booker's improved drastically year over year. So we'll see how that sort of fares out for DeAndre Eaton well, in the future. Well the one thing with DeAndre, if you're gonna get on him this season, is that the big
3: game against the Warriors, he kinda of looked sped up. He didn't he didn't play like he plays as well Definitely. in garbage time. The Nuggets game, Jokic gave it to him. The Lakers game, he looked sped up a little bit. Other than the first game like, he's getting stats and garbage time for the most part, which I guess really isn't his fault considering they get down by 20 at the end of the first quarter. But, um, <laughs> like, I'm saying, like, when there's actual, like, play time, and which is understandable. He's a rookie. He's going to look sped up a little bit. But you can obviously see that
1: he's going to be an all-star center in the league. Absolutely. Now, you, you talked about professionalism now. It's hard to change that, uh, and if it does change, it's going to take probably longer than just this year. And It might even take until Robert Sarver sells the team, as far as we know. We've had the conversation in the past, is, is it possible for an ownership group to get better? We don't know. I mean, there's no real answer to that. We haven't really seen it yet, so it doesn't seem to be pointing towards yes. So it's difficult to say how that's going to get fixed. But what can be fixed is adjustments can be made right now. Uh, the next games, we talked about it, Spurs rivalry game coming up on Wednesday. Um, at least in the past, it was a rivalry game. It hasn't really been that in years. Raptors soon will get Kawhi Leonard. So we, we dodge Kawhi Leonard on the Spurs, but we get him against the Raptors. And then, of course, the Grizzlies beat us by 20 points. That's next Sunday. So who knows? That Grizzlies game could be another difficult game for us adjustments can be made before wednesday we have some time i imagine there's going to be at least one maybe two practices between now and then so adjustments definitely can be made now if you were looking for a specific adjustment to be made on the court use of what would you want it to be at this point going into that spurs game well
3: i think with isaiah's ankle i think i would start it depends on booker's availability but i would start booker and bridges play them together and then um, play Josh in the starting lineup as well with Ariza and Aiton. And then I would, I would not play. I would give a DNP CD to Tyson Chandler, and then go with Rashawn Holmes. They're not going to play Dragon Bender, but I would, I would play Bender over Holmes. But that's not going to happen. So, but as far as well, I mean, if you're, gonna, I mean, as far as the X's and O's, you can't really change anything to crazy at this point so you have to stick with what you installed through training camp I think I think your play calls at certain points in the game can get better Um, I actually think they can have some success against San Antonio considering Bryn Forbes is in their smaller guard if you look at Booker he does well against if you're able to get him onto a smaller guard like with Dallas with Jalen Brunson they kind of gave Jalen Brunson a welcome to the league that first game. And that was a great job by Igor. Mm-hmm. I th- pointed it out in that piece where he ran a set called Fisher Pull where they were able to get Booker switched on to Brunson. At that point, it was a mm-hmm. five-point game with four minutes left. It's not like they were up by 20 at that point. So, um, Igor's Igor has a good understanding of what's a call at certain points. I know Booker said that as well with his certain counters that he runs. Um, I think... That's one bright spot with Igor that can help them throughout the season is he sees the game really well. It's just that they they get down by 20 before the game even starts almost. So you just need to stay in the game. And that's about turnovers, transition defense. I think having Devin Booker come back into the lineup
1: will have a big impact. So, Sam, do you agree with that? Or do you have any specific adjustments that you'd like to see? I love the idea of... Booker, start. You might as well start Booker at point guard at this point. Maybe Kobo sneaks his way into that starting lineup after the last few games as well. If Booker plays or not, um, that would be kind of nice to see. We haven't seen a lot of Kobo, Devin Booker uh, minutes together. But uh, do you have anything you're going to be looking out for, Sam? Yeah,
2: well, I mean, just a a couple of similarities, a couple of differences. I first of all agree, Bench Chandler uh, play homes, maybe even a little bit of Bender. Right. Um, I think the other interesting thing at this point, First of all, I would probably start by starting a Kobo over Canaan, um, and and not be so quick to throw Booker into the point guard role if we can avoid it. Um, and and roll with a starting five of a Kobo Booker, uh, Ariza. Here's here's the interesting thing. You could go a couple of different ways. On the one hand, I said I wanted Josh Jackson in the starting five so we could play a lower usage role uh, and really get more minutes with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. On the other hand, TJ Warren, I think, is at this point making a decent case where uh, maybe you could start him as a small ball four over Ryan Anderson. I think it depends on if over the course of the next five or ten games this three-point shooting of his turns out to be the real deal or not uh, because he made another two threes tonight on, I believe, four attempts. And his shot form does look a lot better. I know one of the things you were talking about in your um, article, Yusuf, was, uh, you know, for, for instance, when Igor calls out things like the zero set that he does and, and looks for um to get shots open for a guy like Ryan Anderson that way maybe TJ can get to the point where he's a consistent enough shooter where you can run those same sorts of sets and and even get him to be the f- the floor spacing guy on the court I know it's so ridiculous <laughs> for me to be saying this right it's now true. but the thing is Ryan gives you so little else on the court that I would just like to believe mm-hmm. if TJ's shooting can be consistent for the next 10 games or so that you could put him in that role and he would no longer have to just be exclusively a six-man guy um, and uh, because he can give you a little bit more of an all-around offensive game. But that might be a little bit too optimistic on my end. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you with Warren. I think um, he and Booker have played together in the past, whereas a lot of these guys have never even played together before. So having that chemistry certainly helps. And specifically with that zero set, um, for Slovenia, Igor usually ran smaller guys that can attack, and they can give you more than just spot up shooting. So um, again, it goes back to, but he's not running that same set for Josh Jackson, right? So that's when I go back to, if you really want Josh Jackson to take a step forward, you need to run plays for him. You can't just have him camping out and attacking closeouts. I mean, it just hasn't worked. It's not going to work. So that's why I kind of agree furthermore with your point that TJ should start. Maybe if you play Josh Jackson off the bench and run some plays for him, see what he
1: can give you. You have to change it up. Yeah, that's I I completely agree with that as well. Now, going into this week, I just get a quick prediction from each of you. I know it's not easy to do. Um, Suns-Spurs on Wednesday, Suns-Raptors on Friday, Suns-Grizzlies on Sunday. Sam, how many of those games do you think the Suns have a chance of winning? Uh One is it the Grizzlies game.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the Spurs are they're the I believe 30th in defensive rating in the league right now. Um com- mm-hmm. going into today's games again, we don't know as of tomorrow morning. I I don't know if the stats are going to be updated and if it will right. then be us possibly actually who's 30th <laughs> in defensive rating. Um but like Yusuf was saying, you take advantage of a guy like Brent Forbes, you take advantage of um guys like Bellinelli getting major minutes, um Pau Gasol is a surprisingly good um defensive not a defensive anchor, rim protector, still. But if you can get him out of position to the point where he's defending the pick and roll, he's barbecue chicken. Um, and and they've got other guys on that team as well. DeMar DeRozan is not a plus defender. I don't believe Rudy Gay is a plus defender. So there are weaknesses for sure. You can absolutely take advantage of San Antonio in some spots. I still don't think they're going to stop the bleeding against them. Um, and so I would just like to see them eke out a one and two record this week.
1: Yusuf, how do you feel about?
3: I think I think they beat San Antonio lose to Toronto and Memphis.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I like I'm that. Pretty, That's I'm the pretty, one I want. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I like that. Well, Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. I hope we can do this maybe more often as well with you because you got some great insight into Igor Kokoschkov, of the offensive sets, and, and you have a lot of interesting opinions on the team and, and uh, them going forward. So thank you so much for joining us. Make sure everyone follow Yusuf on the uh, Suns Film Room Twitter account. I believe it's at Suns Film. And, uh, of course, check out his article. that If you haven't read it already, a uh, b-ball index and uh, I imagine you'll be writing for them every once in a while, right, Yusuf? Around five pieces a month, actually. Oh, wow, you're going to do a lot. That's really but great. I'm not going to be that. as, like, film-heavy.
3: They're going to be, like, observations and stuff.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: There's no right way to lose the game. Obviously, we feel the same way when you lose the game, but there's a lot of positive when it comes to the effort. And it was... It was through the 48 minutes we never quit in the game we kept competing and a lot of positive things when it comes to the you know like um, Ellie or the Cobo and uh, Mikael Bridges and something we're getting from eight no uh, night in and night out every night so effort was good a lot of a lot of positive things in the game obviously we're we're going to feel you know bad that we lost the game but you know effort was there I think we tried and uh, we tried for 48 nights
1: Hey. Tim Tompkins here from the Sun Solar Panel Podcast. So you just got done listening to the Timeline podcast. Mike and Sam do a great job. I listen to every single episode. And if you're like me, you want even more Sun's content. So since you've wrapped up this episode of the Timeline, head on over and subscribe to the Sun Solar Panel Podcast. Chances are we have a new episode that you will enjoy. The Sun Solar Panel Podcast available on iTunes, Google Play, and basically anywhere. You to listen to podcasts, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns legends whose four way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, the Kings, a four part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.
0: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the planet premier league podcast.